I think people are expecting us to talk about Ayurveda and like yeah. have our little cage fight. <laughs> Ayurveda is a pseudoscience. Do you think all of it is a pseudoscience? Tell me one traditional Ayurvedic formulation which is recommended or approved for any disease condition by any clinical society in the world. Huberman is not a clinical doctor. So I would not take his advice as clinical advice at all. What's happening in India where such intense problems are happening? Is it correct to say that the number of patients you're getting is increasing? There is a lot of patients on the wait list who are actually dying without getting a liver on time. How long is the wait list? People who have multiple sexual partners, they have a high risk of developing sexually transmitted disease like hepatitis B or C. You think eating street food plays a role? Pani puri, chutneys, especially this sharbat. You have these sharbat drinks that you get on the roadsides. They all spread hepatitis. Do you know how the organ donation works? Chinese has a different idea. They kill people on the death list and use the organs for the patients. People would consider this murder. It is murder. I know that there's two sets of audience members watching this. The first set is the ones who are watching it for the liver dog only and who haven't seen too much of TRS. I promise you, it's not as pseudoscience oriented as some media portals and some Twitter accounts would tell you. We dive deep into science on this episode. But for the second group of people who are watching this who watch TRS regularly, I'll tell you about this episode. As you know, we've been creating a lot of podcast with doctors lately, we've been deep diving into biology. I've never had more fun deep diving into biology than I did with liver doc, Dr. Abby Phillips. He's got a very ferocious persona on Twitter. A lot of his opinions polarize a lot of people. But guess who else's opinions polarize people? Yours truly. So there were points in the show that we had to debate a few things, but mainly this is an exploration of science and specifically an exploration of one of the most important organs in your body, the liver. There's a lot of very, very pertinent biology-related content in this one. I enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. I enjoyed the heck out of meeting the liver doc, honestly. And you'll see why I'm saying that by the end of this episode. I request both sets of audiences to not hold any prejudices while watching this particular podcast. There's an audience that dislikes me. There's an audience that dislikes him. But I think that the internet needs more of this where two echo chambers, two different verticals of the internet collide and grow together. Lots of love to all the audience members watching this. But for now, it's the liver dog on TRS. Do I call you liver doc or do I call you Dr. Abby? Just call me Abby. Okay. Yeah. People view you as a bit of one of the Avengers like <laughs> of medicine on the internet. Like, I don't know if you're an Avengers fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan of anything graphic novel. It okay. includes superheroes. Okay. So yeah, I'm a fan. Dragon Ball Z? I have the same one. Oh, okay. <laughs> you like DBZ? Of course. Are, okay. <laughs> Lovely. So, uh, you know, you're one of the key Z fighters like on the internet when it comes to the medical community. Yeah. Uh, I think we live in a very politically heated up time. I understand, yes. Uh, and I, then, I get your point. Yeah, that uh, kind of paints an image of healing, medicine, all these things onto many people's heads. Uh, the thing is, India, uh, India's population is so big that all you can do is do your best, put it out there, and then whoever has to gain from you will gain from you. You'll find opponents 
um you know uh, it's not easy to change everyone and we don't we are yeah. not looking to change everyone the way they think the way they have their their own style of health seeking behavior you know we can't change all of that yeah. but at some point people a few people will understand that this is how it is mm. because uh consistently and strongly these opinions were voiced and at some point there is going to be evidence also for that empirical evidence that you know these opinions were not opinions anymore now there is actual factual basis to it and that's when people understand that this these were all important so i'm not look, we are i mean people like me who look look at uh, fighting health misinformation or giving healthcare education we don't expect changes to happen the next day it might happen only maybe after my lifetime or maybe decades later people will come and see that you know these things were actually important uh, for those good things that are going to happen in the future so that is a whole deal so i'm not looking at uh, polarizing anyone i'm not looking at you know uh, making sure my opinions are the only opinions heard no nothing like that it's it's everything put together and shown together from both perspectives and people yeah. can choose logically which is going to be good for them yeah. that yeah uh we have to begin at the basics because the format of the show is that we first grip the 8 year olds the 9 year olds and let them understand the beginning of our conversation okay. about the liver and all that okay uh so uh my my only angle here is let's include everyone in this conversation because i don't want to shoo away the people who are your haters i don't want to shoo away the people who are my haters <laughs> <laughs> 100% yeah if everyone be yeah, included yeah, exactly uh, everyone's bodies are the same <laughs> uh, are everyone's bodies the same uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation when it comes to the liver livers can be slightly yeah. different so uh, we are going to talk about that now about the liver let's start at the ikdam basics yeah. of what a liver does can i have a go at it and then as a doctor you correct me. of course okay where i'm saying something wrong yeah uh, please feel free to interrupt yeah. i'll give you my rudimentary understanding of what i remember from school great stop biology in 10th standard <laughs> but i loved biology till the 10th <laughs> wow, okay um so it's got multiple functions uh urban legend is that liver is one of the only organs that regenerates fast yeah. which is why people use it as an excuse to drink ki <laughs> ha i'll drink and like my liver will be fine Yeah. um so it regenerates fast it's got multiple functions it's one of the key detoxifiers of the body yeah. so if there are toxins that your body gains from food or your habits uh, i believe in your intestines there is blood vessels some kind of veins that send it to the liver oh, wow Am excellent right? yes Am i right yes. uh i what what's the name of that so uh, we have uh, the superior mesenteric vein right that uh, joins with the another vein that comes from the spleen Right. so superior mesenteric vein actually joins from the uh, it comes from the intestines it joins the splenic vein and mm. then it becomes the portal vein which goes into the liver gotcha and that's the vein you're talking about basically your your blood is sent to the liver yeah. the liver purifies the blood uh if you are drinking too much alcohol in the process of purification it gets very damaged yeah uh and i think then the blood is carried to the heart if i'm not mistaken yeah. and then sent to the rest of the body exactly but the thing is over time as you age i am assuming that your function of regeneration reduces because as is the case with aging with all your body's parts uh, regeneration becomes slower 
So your body can't take that much load as you grow older. So one way to easily damage your liver is alcohol. Yeah. Another way, possibly, I'm assuming, could be like you know, a lot eating a lot of shit, like fatty liver disease. Yeah, I mean to oversimplify it. Yeah, but but I can I can just you know expand on all of these points sure, that sure, you so. said. So um, just to uh, expand on it. Sure. Um, so the liver is the uh, is it by weight, it's the second largest organ in the body. So in adults, it weighs about one point two kilograms in women. and uh, about 1.5 kilograms in men in men what is the heaviest the heaviest is skin <laughs> yeah so if you take the whole skin out and weigh it it becomes like 4 kilograms really yeah so the heaviest organ is skin the second heaviest is liver third heaviest is the brain so it's a, it's a second heaviest organ sure now the liver is very special which is why i also chose hepatology as one of my you know professional career practices uh it's very special because one you said it has definitely the it's one of the most powerfully regenerating organ mm-hmm. ever which is why we have that greek mythology where prometheus who stole the fire from gods was punished by the gods and he was chained on a rock and every night an eagle would come and feast on his liver but the eagle would not kill him he'll just eat out of the liver and then go away and his liver would regenerate the next day for that eagle to come back and again eat the same parts so this was like an eternal punishment so until unless you know somebody actually kills the eagle or somebody kills prometheus you know this this punishment is going to go on for for life so that is how the whole aspect of liver generation was first uh, discussed in mythology now if you cut a healthy liver 90% of it and just just cut it off from the body the rest 10% can actually become a whole liver which is about 1.2 kilograms to 1.5 kilograms in 4 to 6 weeks mm. that is how fast it regenerates even in a slightly older person yeah so as you get older your regeneration capacity is still the same but then it is affected by a lot of other things for example um you have fatty livers uh you have other chronic illnesses with in you and also your uh, regeneration potential or your the potential for the liver to actually um what do you call that uh to respond to a stressor actually becomes lesser as you age in order to grip the masses let's talk about stressors because people watch health based podcasts from the sake of lifestyle and health yeah as in fitness yeah. ki yeah. how can i improve my daily life in order to improve my organs yeah so an obvious stressor is alcohol and we'll we'll get into details yeah. about alcohol but Before that, I want to ask you, what are the other stressors? So, the commonest stressor that we see in India is alcohol. Uh, the second commonest that is now still coming up is exactly what we discussed. That is lifestyle change related and metabolic diseases. So, metabolic disease. There is something known as a metabolic syndrome. So, metabolic syndrome has different components in it. So, there is diabetes mellitus. That that is your high sugar levels. You have hypertension, which is high blood pressure. you have dyslipidemia which is high cholesterol and lipid triglycerides you have hypothyroidism which is a low functioning thyroid you have high uric acid which is hyperuricemia all of this is seeming like it's bad diet related yeah so it can be genetic also it has a lot of familial it it can be within the families also and it can be acquired also through sedentary life lack of physical activity uh, obviously uh, taking a lot of carb rich foods or calorie rich calorie dense foods all of this can contribute to it so it's never one of these stressor that is happening it's maybe in people multiple stressor so there is a guy who is drinking alcohol and who is obese that guy has double stressors on the liver 
so these are the common stressors in from a metabolic health point of view that is known as metabolic syndrome which is why now the terminology called non alcoholic fatty liver so we have alcohol related fatty liver and non alcoholic fatty liver that is nafld non alcoholic fatty liver disease the terminology is now changed to masld that is metabolic dysfunction associated steatotic liver disease so steatosis means fat in in technical terms so it's now masld so that's how the name is changed because metabolic health is a huge stressor for the liver i think this is a great point to actually grip the general audience let's talk about fatty liver why do they call it fatty liver is it just because the liver is getting damaged or is there a layer of fat deposited on the liver why does the word fatty even come yeah so um, there are different causes for fat to get deposited inside the liver so when i mean inside the liver it's actually inside the liver cell mm. so the liver is made up of different types of cells so this is also something very interesting because there are no organs as complex as the liver so i mean if some if i ask somebody who, which is the most complex organ that you can think of they'll say the brain because brain is so complex right but brain has only two types of cells that's it two types of cells make up the whole brain look at the heart four types of cells make up the whole heart but look at the liver five types of cells make up the liver and that those are primary types and there are so many different types of it and all in all there are like 330 billion cells in the liver 30 billion cells that make up 1.5 kg so the liver is so complex and the most common cell that you find in the liver is known as a hepatocyte which is the liver cell what we call as liver cell now when you say fatty liver it's basically lipids in droplet forms getting deposited inside the liver cell mm. you know around the nucleus within the cell so that's a fatty liver and when that happens and more than about you know 5% of these uh, liver cells are Uh, affected by this droplet uh, deposition then we call it as a fatty liver because mm-hmm. we see that on ultrasound so when you do a simple scan you can actually see the liver is grade 1 grade 2 grade 3 fatty those are patterns of deposition patterns of damage patterns of deposition of the fat but does that mean also damage no it doesn't mean so when when you, for us to call it damage that lipid should cause inflammation within the liver cell so that is known as fatty liver disease so when you just see fatty liver on an ultrasound that's just fatty liver that is an ultrasound or radiological fatty liver now you look at the liver function test now if you see your liver function test there are various parameters there is total bilirubin there is direct bilirubin there is a component known as ast alt which are liver enzymes sgot sgpt you can actually look at the liver function profile and see that and ggt alkaline phosphatase these are all liver enzymes now if these enzymes are high especially the ast and alt that means there is some damage happening to the liver cell so then we call it as fatty liver disease or steatohepatitis okay so the first stage is just deposition of fat around the nucleus yeah. and at some point if you don't control your lifestyle or if the disease you're going through goes out of hand yeah. then that same deposited fat causes inflammation exactly and then that inflammation is what is referred to as the disease yeah, exactly. part of it now the inflammation does something else in between now this is the most important part because just the inflammation is to some extent fine easily reversible but sometimes the inflammation actually damages the liver cell so that the liver cells actually die and in their position you get scars so you have scarring where the liver cell was damaged so that is known as fibrosis mm. in in technical term mm. so you can have steatohepatitis with fibrosis which means not just the fat deposition or the inflammation now your liver is getting scarred and when that scarring goes beyond a particular point so the scarring is uh, considered as f0 where there is no scarring that is no fibrosis f1 which is an f2 which is early fibrosis 
F3, which is advanced fibrosis, F4, which is what we call as cirrhosis. So that is that 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 range of scarring is also important. So it goes above F2, that becomes significant scarring, and you have a high chance of developing cirrhosis. So this much is there to fatty liver. Got it. Okay. So I think cirrhosis is one of the words that everyone commonly knows. And I'll be very like raw and honest here with you. Usually people look at say neuroscience, neurology or cardiac related stuff as the most common and also probably put diabetes into that yeah. situation, yeah. Uh, into this conversation. People look at heart, brain yeah. and diabetes as the most common medical problems. In my eyes, I believe India is going through a bit of a liver problem on a mass scale uh, because of our dietary habits, because of alcohol consumption increasing in our country. Right. Uh, there's two questions for you. Firstly, from an India perspective, am I saying the right thing? And secondly, in your experience as a liver doctor, have you seen an increase in the number of cases? Because I remember, I don't know whether it was your tweet or I'd read this somewhere that uh, there's a lot of people in their late 20s and early 30s also going through liver disease, yes. which doesn't make sense to me. But then what I will say is I'm a 30 year old man. I've grown up with other guys my age. I'm seeing guys who are dealing with erectile dysfunction at my age, like legitimate erectile okay. dysfunction. Guys who are dealing with hypertension. And all the guys who actually focused on the health, fitness, uh, diet, they're all fine. But even our bodies are, like I'm a, I'm a weight training, I'm a sports guy. I have injuries that I'm dealing yeah, with now. Yeah. So even after taking so much care of my health, at some point your body begins to respond with some kind of injuries. Okay. It's just the process of aging as a man. I'm sure even you I went through that. Yes, yes, like definitely. why do athletes retire? Exactly. But my point is, we don't have liver disease. So what's happening in India where such intense problems are happening? So yeah. is it correct to say that the number of patients you're getting is increasing? Um, so I think uh, this question, I'm going to take it in two ways. One sure. is basically the landscape of liver disease in India. Sure. You know, what at the moment what we are facing. And uh, why is it so? Uh, so the commonest uh, liver disease I still see in my outpatient is still alcohol-related liver disease. Uh, but it will be different in North India. Uh, it will be hepatitis B-related liver disease in North India. And uh, in Punjab, it might be hepatitis C. And it's, it all depends on various environment and other risk factors that are prevalent in these areas. But if you look at any place, be it south, north, east or west in India, you can see there is one cause that is just climbing up and just shooting above everything. And it will become the commonest cause in the next decade, which is what exactly what we are speaking about is non-alcoholic fatty liver because of lifestyle diseases, because of metabolic diseases. So the landscape is now changing from alcohol, viral, viral cause of liver disease to alcohol. And now it is non-alcoholic fatty liver that is more coming up in every parts of the country. And uh, the reason why we are seeing this now is because one, uh, we are detecting it early. So previously, uh, there was this, I mean, if you look at 25, 30 years back, there was this group of liver disease known as cryptogenic or idiopathic. So people have shrunken livers or fissures, cirrhosis, and they did not know what this was due to. Shrunken liver. Yeah. So when in advanced stages of liver disease, in cirrhosis, the liver shrinks and becomes small. Because the cells outside get Yeah, dead. no, because all the cells inside get dead and is replaced by scar tissue. So it becomes shrunken. So that is the end stage of liver disease. So uh, a lot of patients decades before, they did not know why that was happening. So... They were not consuming alcohol. They were not having this viral hepatitis. No viral, viral infections were there. 
so they used to call it as cryptogenic which is mysterious crypto means mysterious uh, idiopathic means unknown that is what the technically we use and uh, as the decades went by now we understood that you know lifestyle diseases and metabolic disease also can harm the liver and all of those cryptogenic causes idiopathic causes are now clubbed under non alcoholic fatty liver so the uh, improvements in uh, health technology and diagnostics has actually helped us understand non alcoholic fatty liver as an important cause for liver disease now because of which it is now getting detected very early even in younger group of people who have metabolic disease who have some lifestyle uh, you know changes that are unhealthy what would metabolic diseases include exactly like we spoke about before diabetes obesity um, a low thyroid function which is hypothyroidism uh, high cholesterol and lipid profiles high uric acid presence of heart disease uh lack of physical activity sedentary life overweight all of this become part of metabolic disease and you'd say that all these are partially due to genetic factors and then partially due to lifestyle exactly so there are genetic factors there are environmental factors there are epigenetic factors there are these factors that will affect you before you were born you know while you're inside your mother's womb there are factors that can affect you there which can actually promote uh, fatty liver disease or some disease liver disease in the future so even such factors are all there so it's not just one factor which is causing non alcoholic fatty liver disease but many things that come together at that particular point but you said that you know you're seeing an increase of this one thing yeah. which is what we're talking about yeah. here there has to be a reason that in 2024 or the 2020s generally this one thing is increasing yeah. so we got to see what changed because effectively i would assume that the genetics of indians roughly would be the same now 20 years ago 40 years ago 60 years ago would be different right would be different because now uh, see it 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 all depends on uh, imagine that there was this particular family who were getting married in that only particular community in that particular region now they have moved to another place and they get married to people in another region where more of metabolic diseases are prevalent so they have a higher risk of developing metabolic disease now which it was not there before so all of these things matter right so human uh, migration uh, risk factors in the family within the family the environment that you are in for example is very interesting thing is um, there are certain occupations that promote fatty liver disease for example people who work in night shifts so your normal biological clock is meant for you to sleep from this time to this time right so when night shifts come they have a disrupted sleep cycle and they don't get the actual good sleep that they need to get a lot of people get lower hours of sleep just that can promote fatty liver mm-hmm. so lack of sleep poor quality of sleep or a non restorative sleep you are sleeping but you don't feel fresh in the morning like you have not slept at all you sometimes you feel that i mean we all feel that so that non restorative sleep also can promote fatty liver it has nothing to do with your genetics or your environment or your family nothing Hmm. So there are so many such factors now. Yeah. Um you know I I actually want to get into this genetics conversation a little bit because there's a thing of dominant genes and submissive genes and we had mm-hmm. a genetic scientist on the show Dr. Neeraj Rai. He spoke about basically how you shouldn't marry within the same community and when you mm-hmm. marry outside yeah. it's just genetically a healthier thing to do. Yeah. And that's basic human biology that yeah that's that's something known as consensual marriages where you marry your relatives in the sense your first degree cousins or you know their second cousins and things like that and liver diseases do come with no, that kind of i'm i'm saying the opposite of that yeah if, if you if do you, if you do exact opposite it becomes better so that thing you said about migration i would assume that if someone is in say kerala for example yeah. then they move to 
Assam. Yeah. And uh, if they marry an Assamese person, shouldn't it actually help with the liver function? So it depends on who I'm marrying. So if you are marrying somebody who has, imagine hepatitis B in the family, you are okay. at a risk of developing hepatitis B. Okay. Or but your children are at a risk of developing hepatitis B. But if you're marrying somebody who is healthier without hepatitis B, without any other genetic diseases, it's, it's fine. Great. It's fine. Yeah. So say if they don't have hepatitis B, yeah. uh, first of all, do that many people have hepatitis B? Huge numbers. India is actually uh, a huge region which has an epidemic of hepatitis B and it's mostly in the north. What is hepatitis? Let's get there and then yeah. like open so, up this. Um, so uh, when I say hepatitis, sure. it just means inflammation of the liver. Simple. Sure. There is some swelling and damage happening in the liver. Hmm. That's a general term. Hepatitis can be due to various causes. For example, alcohol can cause alcohol-related hepatitis. Uh, or simple fatty liver, that is your uh, metabolic fatty liver disease, can cause inflammation because of the fat. What we were just talking about. Talking about non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Viruses can cause hepatitis. That is, hepatitis viruses are many types. The common ones that we see are viral hepatitis A, viral hepatitis B, C, and E. That is what we see in our country. Uh, viral hepatitis A and E are spread through contaminated and bad food and water. Where viral hepatitis B and C, they are mostly spread through other routes. So hepatitis B and C requires blood-to-blood -blood contact to spread. It doesn't spread through air or water or food. And that means that uh, four major uh, routes of spread. One is during blood transfusions. I mean, usually uh, before the 1980s, when we did not know about these viruses, we used to have pe people who did not undergo screening for these viruses at that time. And they got transfused with infected blood and got hepatitis B later on in life or hepatitis C. Now, there are others who use, people who use injectable drugs. And this is very common in Punjab. Heroin. Yes, injectable drugs. Mm. And they share these needles. And that's how they get transmission of hepatitis B and C. Then uh, people who have multiple sexual partners, they have a high risk of developing sexually transmitted disease like hepatitis B or C. And the fourth one is what is very important in India and very importantly what I see, something known as perinatal spread. I'll just simplify it down. It's very interesting. So if uh, somebody's parents, father or mother, has hepatitis B, but they don't know about it because all hepatitis B viral infections does not become a disease. The virus just stays in your body. It doesn't do anything. In some cases, it might promote liver damage, cause cirrhosis, liver cancer, whatever. But in many patients, many people, they are just inside. We don't know about it. So in such people, they transmit this virus to their children. So the mothers can transmit the virus to their children during childbirth. And fathers can transmit the virus to their children during the early years of life uh, due to excessive, uh, what do you call that, uh, handling and uh, kissing and all so usually only yeah. the yeah usually only the eldest uh, son or daughter gets it because fathers then get you know the second son third son fathers are like okay fine and this is actually identified in indian studies by the way fantastic studies so this is known as horizontal spread father to children and from mother to children it's known as vertical spread so this is what we see commonly that is why when we are we identify a person with hepatitis b viral infection we screen the family you know we screen the brothers and sisters we screen the parents to, for us to confirm that even they, if they have it or not, if they have, should we treat them or not? Okay. So this is very interesting. To curb this hepatitis epidemic, effectively, what I am seeing the solution as is education. Of course. That awareness. 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 People just need to know, which is 
why it's important for people to hear this podcast you know what challenge i'm facing see i'm i'm talking to you right now yeah. parallelly i have to ensure that my podcast is interesting as a listen for people which brings me back to that heart disease brain yeah. and a uh, diabetes thing everyone listens about these things because those are common conversations in living know, room no I one know. talks about liver health i know i Though know it's important yeah so i i'm 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 going to just uh, i mean you know button here and say that you know uh i understand a lot of there is a lot on cardiac heart health and gut health and brain health but the real sexy organ is the liver you know this is the organ that you should actually should know about i mean no offense to cardiologists um it's just a pumping system so if you have a block you clean it and uh, if it stops pumping you restart it that's cardiology i'm very sorry no offense to cardiologists but when it comes to the liver it's so much more complex because it handles so many complex things for example from your immune system fighting infections from digesting and metabolizing every nutrient aspect that your body requires to hormonal balance uh to protecting like you said from outside invasion from your uh, intestines because our intestines are always full of bacteria viruses and fungi all of this and maintaining brain heart lung and all that health the liver is at the centermost position so it's the core organ which actually connects to everything that is why we have a gut brain axis because of the liver we have a gut uh, heart axis because of the liver all of this because of the liver it's like the center back of the body in football terms yes so so we have a master organ which is actually something known as a pituitary gland in the brain but that is a master gland but the master organ i would say is definitely the liver hmm okay so many tangents have to go on but let's go back to what we were talking about that increase you spoke about in india yeah so uh my argument was that it has to be lifestyle and then you said and no it's also this hepatitis stuff and that is happening because of a lack of awareness yes. and education yes so perhaps if every indian understands hey go and eat clean food hey don't have multiple sexual partners hey uh don't drink too much alcohol hmm. you will curb that hepatitis epidemic to a large degree uh yes to some extent of course because some of these are preventable for example mm. hepatitis b you take a vaccine you won't get it everyone doesn't take the vaccine no i don't think everybody uh, takes the vaccine even though it's under the national guidelines policy children do get it when they are uh, you know at birth but then a lot of them are unaware of it and they don't actually check for antibodies and then do a booster and all later on in life and this is very important what percentage of india do you think has taken it if you are to just do guess work i mean if you go by the national guidelines it should be 100% but i am not sure i'm just going to guess here maybe sure. maybe 40 45% so that remaining 55 is sitting in small town india possibly yes without access to actual medical care and access to actual vaccination programs would you argue also without access to information of course because if they are aware they would definitely do it because this is a prevent- preventable cause of liver disease and i would say that this there are two uh, liver diseases which you can definitely prevent and one is alcohol related liver disease and one is hepatitis b because alcohol don't take alcohol you're fine hepatitis b take a vaccine you're protected you think eating street food plays a role i would say eating street food from unhygienic and un- and poor sanitized places plays a role in spread of hepatitis a and e but not the other ones sure. you know i mean people can enjoy street food no no problems there but if they are going to go into a place where it's po- poorly poor hygiene and sanitation there is a high risk of developing hepatitis a and d Oof. which by the way are self limiting causes for hepatitis for example they'll come i mean you get it you have jaundice and you have high bilirubin levels and all that and then within few weeks time it will go away so uh, you don't actually need 
to treat it. You just have to support, give supportive care, and then prevent going to uh, such places. And hepatitis A, by the way, is endemic in Kerala. So every rainy season, we have a lot of cases coming in because people go and eat street bad street food, unhygienic street food, and they get hepatitis A. Which is why there is a travel advisory. If some somebody is coming from outside to Kerala during the rainy season, please take a hepatitis A vaccination about two weeks before coming. So it protects you if and you want to eat good street food. <laughs> how does the human eye that is not educated even spot good versus bad street food? Because I mean, a lot of street food. So I'll I'll do the the rudimentary input I've gotten from doctor friends is yeah. uh, ideally try avoiding cold things and try avoiding things that are liquid based, which means we got to say goodbye to pani puri. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would I would say that's that's good advice because uh, water. I mean, liquid formulations is what actually spreads these things because it's water contamination mostly. So chutney. Yeah. and yeah i mean like pani puri chutneys especially this sharbat you have these sharbat drinks that you get on the road sides they all spread hepatitis i mean i get a lot of young uh, teenagers who come and uh, you know get treated under me with hepatitis during rainy season because they go for a college trip to some place and they take these uh, sharbats and all these um, you know fizzy drinks that are made on the road side shops oh. and they get infected with hepatitis a and come goti soda Uh, I mean, you can see. I mean, where they're using the water from, and how hygienic they are, the surroundings, and all that. Mm. And be aware of that, and then enjoy your street food. Let's go one layer deep in this goti soda yeah. and sharbat thing. Yeah. How is the sharbat and goti soda actually getting contaminated? So it it's from the water source that they use. So uh, if they are not using good water source, so for example, they might just be using the street pipe water to fill and use the sodas and all really? that. Really? Yeah. Street pipe water. Yeah. So I have seen um, these stalls. There, they have a small tap on the side, which is directly connected to some pipeline, and they'll be just filling that up and then, you know, putting it in the water. Or it might be they'll be taking that and then putting ice in it and keeping it on the side, right. and then be using that. Right. So those things actually, I mean, it 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 has a very high level of infection rate, mm. especially during these rainy seasons, where you, I mean, there is something also known as leptospirosis, which is known as Uh, a rat fever in kerala where it comes specifically during rains and it's because of contaminated water because of rat urine the rats come out from the fields and it contaminates the water sources and when they use such water sources people get infected and it also presents with jaundice so there is another cause of hepatitis leptospirosis very and it's very commonly seen in kerala and it we call it as triple r it's not the movie it's uh, <laughs> rats rains and rice fields So these are the three risk factors that promotes in this infection. Rice field. Yeah. So basically, where there are rice rice fields, there will be a lot of rats around, and when it rains, these rats come out and then pollute the waters. Ah. So three risk factors for uh, this leptospirosis, which is known as Wheels disease in clinical terms, uh, is RRR, and uh, that's also one cause for jaundice that we see in Kerala huh? because of poor hygiene. Have you read *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari? Yes, I have. I have. Um, you know, he draws out this picture of the time when human beings, as biologically evolved as us, were hunter-gatherers. Yes. And how that was a much more beautiful life if you really think about it. Okay. There was less pressure of social media. I understand. Was, yeah, there was no industrialization. Yeah. So, I think that's the whole stress of it. His argument is that lifespans were shorter. But uh, probably that quality of life was much better because it was a cleaner life. There were lesser human beings polluting the world. uh yeah so there is something i might add here uh so if you if you look at in 1800s or 1600s our life span or life expectancy was somewhere around 
maybe 25 to 30 years that's it uh and before that what year is uh, this um, 1600s to 1700s our life expectancy was somewhere around 30 years of age and uh, a lot of that time there were a lot of diseases which we never knew about so diabetes is one of that so many kids with type 1 diabetes which is insulin dependent diabetes they used to die at a very young age because of complications of diabetes at a very young age you know just infections after infections but then we had insulin the banding and best discovered insulin and then we started insulin therapy for people with diabetes we saw these kids growing up and developing complications of diabetes in the old age so something that we saw acutely the all the problems of that disease in a younger stage we are now seeing all of that in a later stage so exactly what what we are discussing here i mean at that time of hunter gatherers i mean they had shorter lives but they had more they had more diseases that killed them faster Mm. now we have diseases which kill us slower but helps us live longer you know it's 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 i think it's a bargain that we made with science yeah. science has improved our life expectancy but in the process we are seeing a lot more complications related to what actual diseases bring to us in the long term which was not possible before very interesting conversation yeah um earlier it was survival of the fittest now it's survival of the fittest and cleanest <laughs> to some extent yeah so i think this vaccination which we were talking about now it has uh, become very important because did you uh, i mean did you come across this news in the us and i think in the uk where now children are getting diagnosed with measles and uh, they are getting measles related deaths now because of the anti vaccine movement that is going on in the west uh, as in they're not even taking measles vaccines no. as a part of the anti vaccine yeah, exactly so it started off with the covid vaccine and now it is spilled over into the other vaccines where these vaccines prevented childhood death measles mumps that is rubella uh diphtheria tetanus and all of these so this old world diseases are now making a comeback so we are back to the hunter gatherer stage maybe in the next 10 or 20 years because if they don't vaccinate and uh, especially kids with this childhood Uh, diseases we can prevent we're going to see a lot of these old world diseases come back to us what is the origin point of this thought of saying no to vaccines oh that started off with the smallpox era so at the time so basically it's something to do with being going against the authority so your government or some authority is saying take it so there are a group of people why should you why should we listen to you we don't want to take it so any amount of information uh, logic or reasoning that you give that particular group they will not accept it because they are just looking at going doing things against the authority because they feel stronger that way so the one layer deep why i think it's just so this is something more important it's known as the bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity right so uh the more people are misinformed or the more they are illiterate from a health care point of view the more they are uh you know the more likely they are going to uh, fall for conspiracy theories so i'm going to say that you know there is this new vaccine for smallpox i mean i'm talking about smallpox era so we discovered the new vaccine and now this prevents smallpox so everybody take it so some group will say that you know this is actually some company has made this and government is getting a cut out of it and that is why they are giving this vaccine that's conspiracy theory and now this will reflect and uh, do well in groups where there is low health literacy who will believe anything and everything because they have maybe poor education they are not literate enough to understand consequences of these actions and they will just swallow this whole right and there are these groups and these groups it again become bigger and bigger because you i mean if you ask me 
the theory also says that a small group of stupid people is much threatening than a single evil person you know if you have a very evil person you know take maybe hitler for example you know a small group of stupid people is more damaging than that guy and because there was lot of stupid people around evil people evil people mm. were able to do evil things oh <laughs> damn right so mm. this is the whole anti vaccine movement so there is this evil guy who has conspiracy theories in the head and there are lot of stupid people who will believe him this keeps going on and on and becomes a movement yeah. i think the thing with conspiracy theories is that the human mind grasps it very fast because it's stories exactly one layer deeper than what we're talking about is yeah. human psychology probably that exactly. you're able to grasp exactly stories much more than you're able to grasp data in fact exactly exactly uh, and it's easier which is why the process of education is important it's very important and 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 it's not just education because i see a lot of educated i'm sorry stupid people education does not mean intelligence actually and uh, i think it's all to do with critical thinking so you have a problem in front of you or i give you a problem in front of you you must be able to analyze that problem in different angles and come to a conclusion which is most logical for example i'm going to say that you know hepatitis b vaccination prevents hepatitis b infection so you can ask me how many of people will develop side effect against this vaccine so i'm going to say you know maybe 100000 people take the vaccine one person could develop a side effect so you will say you ask me is that side effect going to be life threatening so i'll say maybe it's life threatening maybe self limited side effect then you will say what if i develop that side effect you see how the way the thinking is going so it's going into a negative conclusion already so that person decided that hepatitis b vaccination may harm him mm. but the truth is it will protect him more than harming him mm. so the critical thinking will allow us to balance these two factors so what is benefit risk ratio so something is more beneficial and less risky rather than more risky and less beneficial your mind should automatically conclude that something that is more beneficial and less risky is good for you i want to talk about that one evil guy yeah what do you when, when it comes to anti vaxxing as a concept right have you ever thought about where it originated because there's another conspiracy theory attached to this okay. which says that if more people fall ill the pharma industry makes more money see i mean this is this is in a way uh, if you look at how medical science has evolved and why we have vaccines now why we have a lot of these drugs now which prevents diseases like tuberculosis we can cure tuberculosis now when it was killing millions centuries ago it's because of the pharma industry you know pharma industry we can look at it two ways you can look at it a glass half empty or you can look at it a glass half full mm. and people who love conspiracy theories will always look at it half empty you know uh, your rockefeller comes in your soros comes in i mean everybody comes in and even simple doctors like me come into that picture you know we are all big pharma agents and working for it and we don't i don't get a single penny from them mm. and uh, what what this has happened is that see we need the pharmaceutical uh, industry because we want to produce medicines that are going to save lives and we want them to do research and produce new molecules that will save more lives in the future so just looking at pharma as a bad thing is i i i think it's it's not uh it's not uh, righteous to do that it's it's an inaccurate way to look at pharma because they're doing more good than the bad that little conspiracy bad that you are thinking that they're doing 
you know there there are bad pharmaceutical practices i am 100% i am not denying it there was one where ranbaxy and i think you have you might have heard of this book called bottle of lies yeah. uh, uh, written by katherine iban and uh, she actually showed that this person whom i uh, i mean i'm very good uh, friends with him uh, he's also a follower and friend on twitter uh, dinesh thakur he actually called out uh, ranbaxy for doing unethical trials in africa where they actually gave uh children and adults uh tablets which did not contain the drug but you know something like a chalk powder or something like that it did not contain the drug and then they made money out of it so he was a whistle blower and he took them to court i mean and they took him to court actually saying defamation suit and all but he won and ranbaxy just collapsed after that so there are ba- ethical bad ethical practices in the pharma industry 100% bad ethical practices among doctors 100% but that does not mean the medical science is bad mm-hmm. medical science is good it brings me to that avenger conversation we had at the start yeah. that we need more doctors on social media yes because when the average person gets to know you guys as human beings yeah. uh, it'll sort out a lot i think what i read as the fear of doctors uh, is again exactly what we were talking about conspiracy theories yeah. and the theory of negative biases yes. that one small bad person will actually you know uh, exactly. paint the picture exactly. for the whole industry but exactly. uh i think human beings generally need to understand more nuance which is what i enjoy about my job which i've understood is kind of the purpose of podcasting yeah. that we can have very long stretched out nuanced conversation rather than like you know yeah i mean just just putting it out there in a point i mean there is so many things around it uh i mean i don't know if this is the time to talk about it but uh, like you said there is one small thing that can actually impact everything uh in a bad way instead of looking at it uh wholesomely and understanding that it is actually not so bad it's actually pretty good uh, i think it is about transplantation liver transplantation yeah. there is something uh, that i would like to talk here from a personal point of view also because i have been in the eye of the storm on social media on this um i mean the, the something that our country lacks uh, is a good transplant system i'm i'm talking about just purely from the liver transplantation point of view we don't have a centralized system for liver transplantation you'll have to give some context here you mean yeah. there needs to be a body where some people can come and donate livers after death yeah so uh, in the us let me take the example sure. of united states so they have something known as a unos that is a united network for organ sharing so if and they have a lot of disease donors so we have two ways to get the organ for patients who require the liver who are in end stage liver disease one is something known as uh, donation after brain death so the person is alive but the he is brain dead which means he's not going to wake up any time so they donate voluntarily the organ to person who requires it what if the person wakes up and you no have... that is that is why we have uh, brain death certification rules so there are rules there are clinical uh, guidelines set up to ensure that that pe- that person is brain dead and after that and it's a step by step process which takes many many hours to do that but they can survive without a liver no the brain dead patient means he's he's dead he's oh, considered okay. dead he's not clinically dead he's brain dead but then he'll die at some point anyways so before that we use him to give life to others so that is the whole point of voluntary organ donation and okay. that 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 that's actually how how humanity or humanism works in uh, transplantation medicine so that is one way to give the organ the second way is something known as living donation so for example i'm not getting a brain dead donor on time and the patient is going to die very soon so a family member decides to donate a part of the liver so that is known as living donation 
So a part of the liver, whichever, whatever amount of liver that is required for the patient to function quickly, because the liver will grow, like we said before, it will grow very fast within four to six weeks. We give that part of the liver to that person and he will survive. So this is known as living donation and it comes from the relatives. As in the relatives and the patient's liver will both grow because of that one healthy yeah, liver? Yeah, so the patient's liver will fully come out because that's a bad liver. The whole yeah. liver will come out and the part of this the relative's liver will go in. And both will grow? Yes, both will grow because okay. it's a healthy liver. It will grow very fast and both the patient and the donor will be fine. So that is living donation, which is what is happening mostly in India. In the US, they have more of disease donation. So you have this organ sharing network where they have all these people who have pledged their organ donations or voluntarily donated the liver, they'll all come into that. And then they'll match that with whoever the recipient is at various parts of the country, whoever requires it faster, whoever can wait a little bit. So they will transfer this organ accordingly to that port. Uber port. for organs. Yeah, I mean, Uber we can just call. Usually <laughs> here you have, to, you have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so it's, it's like, uh, it's like a, a good system that works. Uh, depending on who needs it first. So mm. it's very well well settled there. Mm. In India, we don't have such a system. So if you go to Delhi or if you go to Kerala, they'll have their own organ sharing network, uh, which is for that region. So for example, uh, if I have a liver for, if a patient is brain dead in Kerala, that uh, brain dead patient's liver cannot be used in Tamil Nadu or in Karnataka because it's not centralized. You can use it only in here. But, but there might be people who might be requiring that uh, organ much more there than here. So that kind of system is not available here. So we have these two. So most of these is from living donation that we have in India. Now, because of this, uh, and there are there are cost differences. So uh, you're getting a whole liver from a brain dead patient versus you're getting part of the liver from a living person. The surgery is more complex in the living because it's a healthy person. You have to make sure that the person will be okay after the trans after the surgery. And it it's two surgeries at a time. And here it's just one surgery because already the person is brain dead and you're just getting the liver and putting in the... So there are cost differences also. In India, because of this, there is a lot of patients on the wait list who are actually dying without getting a liver on time. How long is the wait list? I mean, I have patients who waited on the list for two years and died in front of me in my ICU. When we could not offer them a liver and they did not have a matching donor in the family. And they tried their level best to get a matching donor, but we could not. I mean, there, I mean, this is not one story. I mean, I have hundreds of patients like that. Is this the biggest problem that transplantation medicine is facing in India? This is the prob core problem, but there is a bigger problem. Mm. What happens is that, um, I mean, Kerala was one of the states where we had maximum numbers of brain death sharing. You know, it was as good as Spain till 2017, 2018. And what happened was that in 2017, 2018, if I am right, a movie released in Kerala, a Malayalam movie by the name Joseph. I'm not sure I've heard of it. That movie actually showed uh, people were actually getting killed and their organs were given to hospitals as part of uh, a, a racket. Kidney kidnapping. Kidney and liver, whatever. Mm. You know, it's like a huge racket going on like that. It was a fictional story but people took it to heart you know and the organ sharing just suddenly collapsed in Kerala after that movie came out because everyone thought all the hospitals doing transplantation is doing it for the money killing people and people thought that people on the brain dead proclamation list were actually not brain dead but doctors are making them brain dead and taking their organs this conspiracy just flew so much out of control 
that me, my father, my father is a very senior gastroenterologist. He is one of the first gastroenterologists in India only. He's done a lot of, he's a Padma Shri Award winner also uh, in 2010. Uh, his name is uh, Philip Augustine. His name is Dr. Philip Augustine. So uh, he, me, all of us were actually sucked into this conspiracy and this happened also recently. Really? Yeah, where uh, my father started the first living donation transplant program in Kerala in uh, Lakeshore Hospital. And uh, we had very good program there. And somebody, a conspiracy theorist, who's also a doctor, by the way, a proper MBBS doctor, he said that, you know, this hospital is actually killing young men and collecting their organs. Out of jealousy? I have no idea. Or maybe out of that 15 minutes of fame that he wanted. Or maybe he is doing that for money. Because people do that to hospitals and hospitals don't want their name to come out in the open. So they'll just give him settlement money. You know, don't go for this case. Just take this money and be on the side. You know, people do that. But we did not because we never did that. And I was not part of that hospital at the time. I was doing my, uh, you know, training and my studies uh, in Calcutta and Delhi. But uh, when this happened in 2009, this just blew out of proportion. And uh, we had this huge conspiracy theory going in Kerala that, you know, this hospital and other hospitals are actually collecting patients, uh, I mean, making, killing patients and taking their organs out. That has actually impacted the transplantation program even now. Why I am saying this out here in the open on your podcast is that when somebody makes that conspiracy theory, and, and by the way, that theory has never been proven even now. I mean, the guy has been started, he started cases in 2009, now it's 2024. No doctors were arrested. No doctors are charge sheeted. Uh, it went to the magistrate court, it was taken out from there. It went to the National Tribunal Commission for Organ Transplantation, was taken out from there. Then he sent a private complaint again in 2019 to another local court there, which the court ordered again, let us look at it again. And then the whole thing blew out of proportion again. And this keeps happening and now it is all settled again because nobody could prove anything I mean, in this particular case. Uh, but these things keep coming and coming. And in social media, people keep talking about it again and again, taking my name, my dad's name, taking the name of organ transplantation in the name of killing people and all mm. that. Please don't do that. Because when there is a dearth of organ donation voluntarily from people, there are people on the list dying. We should consider that also. So this is one big, bigger problem that we are facing now. This whole conspiracy theory in organ transplantation, like we have anti-vaccination in the West. It's spreading throughout India and we are getting lesser and lesser branded donations. And because of that, young people are dying on the list. Were you guys attacked because of this? I mean, attacked in different ways, not physically, but the whole social media disinformation campaign was quite bad. My dad is 76 years old. He has done everything, spent his whole life giving back to people. And uh, I mean, to face this now at this age, it's, it's quite sad to see that. And uh, I mean, we fought it tooth and nail. Our lawyers are good. And now these guys are on the back foot because we have evidence to show that everything was done as per rules and guidelines and nobody was killed for any organ. But these stories will keep happening again and again, in, again and again, you know, maybe about five years later, six years later. But people should understand that this is where the critical thinking comes. You know, these are stories, never proven. And organ transplantation saves lives. It does. Imagine a patient of mine who was an alcohol abuse, alcohol use disorder patient uh with severe liver disease decides to quit alcohol become good uh wanted to care for his family now wanted a new life but also needs the liver to do that hmm. so he is fully abstaining he's changed his ways he's changed his life and he's waiting for a liver and he does not get that liver and he dies after two years with young children and a wife leaving a young children and a wife i mean the the hurt that I go through the hurt that that family goes through because this conspiracy theory has been moving around. 
and we are not getting livers on time it's just so damaging okay sorry uh, you have to go through this sir uh, honestly i mean uh, it's it's i think it's important because only with confusion we can get clarity very interestingly so i mean do you know how the organ donation works in india so it's an it's an exclusive program for example if you pledge your organs to that particular society only then they will consider you as an organ donor otherwise you will just go i mean after i mean whatever brain dead or after death you'll just go six feet under or get cremated i mean whatever is the tradition and then that that body is gone right so if you are part of that donation list you want to pledge your organs only that organs can be used but look at france france is so beautiful they have a small legal or a law which states says that everybody is considered as an organ donor until they refuse wow yeah so they have an exclusion list so you have to go on the list and say that i refuse to give my organs to other human beings you know and then they will not take your organs otherwise everybody is an organ donor by law which is why you get very high rates of organ transplantation in france very high rates of advanced liver disease patients surviving for longer duration in france it's fantastic so such a system we need to promote uh, you know better healthcare or better lives for patients who are on advanced liver disease listing in india let me switch to another country from this point of view china so if you look at all the liver transplantation research clinical research uh, you'll actually see very very less research being published from china so you have very big big uh, journals where we publish our liver research findings and all that and we have journals for liver transplantation also uh, in us and europe and all but you will see very small numbers of publications from china you know why because the chinese has a different idea what they do is they kill people on the death list and use the organs for the patients kill people on the death list as in so there are these prisoners who have been oh. serving life or oh, maybe damn. on the death list so what they do is they make them brain dead and then they use those organs for they make them brain dead yeah how do you make someone brain dead i mean it's 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 easy to do that i mean you give a set of injections and you do certain procedures you can make a person brain dead and uh, then they harvest organs and give lobotomy i think it's called uh, yeah, yeah yeah i mean lobotomy is one part of it but this this is i mean they won't be conscious you know they won't be conscious but they'll be conscious conscious but not alert and you know like that so chinese do that which is why uh, you don't get many publications from china in uh, liver transplantation journals and there are many articles retracted after publication many articles were actually retracted and removed from these journals because they found out that the transplantation that was done in those particular articles were actually from killed prisoners because worldwide in retrospect yeah people would consider this murder that's murder it is murder it is it is murder it is murder yeah so so that is ha- what is happening in the china part of it so, so such a gray <laughs> zone this is because those guys are evil that's why they're in prison but yeah. in, there's a whole argument or false accusation i don't get yeah. in there but yeah but it's not easy to discuss that topic at all because they have their reasons we have our reasons because we are all humans we are not supposed to kill somebody to save somebody and ultimately that's it's it's a gray area i i don't know how the transplant community also looks at it because china is china and uh, we don't i mean so they don't publish such uh, cases and articles from them based on this kind of thing in transplantation so uh, that that also happens on the side so that is why we need a good govern govern uh, a, a, a very good program that is governed by a 
proper body a regulatory authority which can ethically and morally consider organ transplantation for people in india which is lacking here you know i was going to ask you about what the possible solution here is the possible solution here is policy yeah. so my angle is why can't and tell me the honest input here. why can't doctors all over the country get together go to the health ministry and say listen this is what we need next what's what's the friction there like this is a very important question you know what because our public health infrastructure and services are not up to the mark to provide organ transplantation across the board in the country as in even if the government agrees and policies are made the infrastructure the hospitals the yeah. number of doctors in the hospitals are not up to the mark yes i mean public sector so if you look at the transplant programs in india it's all shouldered by the private sector so the maximum number of organ transplantation that is happening in kerala is probably in major three hospitals that is one is amrita hospital one is aster hospital fantastic programs and one is our place rajagiri hospital so three uh, institutes in uh, in kochi area takes a lot of burden of liver transplantation kochi also has a medical college a government medical college but they don't even have a hepatology department there they don't have a gastroenterology department there they have absolutely no organ donation facilities or organ transplantation facilities there so if it has to be a program that is governed by the government body it means that it has to be an equitable and a, and a affordable program where the financial burden on the person or the patient and the family becomes much lesser in the private sector that does not happen because you have to pay so you're approaching this from two angles one anything you're saying about transplantation medicine is actually from a mass perspective we're talking about the masses of india where their bodies are the same as ours so they'll go through the same problems yeah uh but the second angle here is that uh, we just don't have enough hospitals and we we have enough hospitals but we don't have enough of uh infrastructure and state of the art facilities to promote this on a public health scale you know uh see it's it's easy to say that you know this person individually somebody can afford a transplant they will get a transplant but there is somebody who needs a transplant but cannot afford it so he has to be in the public health system where he'll get an organ and he 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 can survive so everybody has a right to health everybody has a right to live i am trying to see this from a very business point of view to solve the problem that our country is facing when it comes to medical healthcare at least from a providing doctors perspective uh i hope that this conversation leads to some kind of change i hope so because actually it's not seeming like there is a <laughs> out and out solution you have to yeah. go into each hospital redo the way those programs I are know. done i mean there, there are uh, there are uh, inspections and lot of things done but everything everybody can get a certificate anytime in this country in any place i mean people have to you know nurture that thought that you know this is the righteous thing to do by this group of people i mean they are students and they need to learn also apart from doing work and uh, i mean i don't know how we can do that across the board um you become better at your job as a medico when you are practicing right practicing and also teaching i mean because uh, that's the final step of learning yeah so uh, a doctor ideally from the greek it means teacher first it does not mean healer or a physician it means teacher so doctor has to be first a teacher a teacher to the patients and a teacher to other juniors other doctors and then comes your practice so when you practice you gain experience and experience may not always be the right thing to guide you so i understand that there, there is a doctor who's maybe like you know 50 years of experience and all that but he'll still treat fatty liver disease wrongly 
Really? Yeah. Because he may, I get a lot of such cases in my uh, in my referral unit. So I get a lot of patients who have been treated by very senior uh, gastroenterologists and very senior physicians the wrong way uh, with just multiple prescriptions for a simple disease which actually required only lifestyle change. So my main job actually in my OPD most of the time is something like deep prescription. So they'll have 20 tablets. They'll be taking for they'll be taking medicines for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's all for the liver. Almost all for the liver. Some for the uric acid, some for the diabetes. So it's it's too much. So this is not as poly pharmacy where you just you know carpet bomb patients with medicines and something will work out. So what I do is I deprescribe all of that and make it into either one or two medications. And patients are so happy because one they understand that their disease is not that bad and they can control get a control on it. That actually satisfies the patients. It gives them motivation. And two financial burden comes down which is a big thing and a big deal for our patients in this country. And just because a doctor is, has got a huge practice and is actually uh, uh, seeing patients for about 10 or 25 years, that does not mean that doctor is actually a good doctor. Mm. Now, he might be a good person, but when it comes to clinical practice, he might be flawed. So this is my whole uh, idea of talking about what an experienced doctor is versus what an, a doctor who is actually educationalist. Yeah. So when they actually teach They'll up, they're updated and they know exactly what is the right thing to do by their patient. Yeah. I think one of the bottom lines I've learned for the non-medical population, which is everyone minus doctors, is that always look for a doctor who's constantly getting updated with what's happening. Yes. I, I would definitely choose an academic clinician rather than just a high practicing clinician. How does an average person know ki, okay, this doctor's an academic clinician? It's, it's difficult because I mean, now it's, I think it's a little more easier because we have social i mean we have information at the fingertips so if you just go and look at the doctor's profile most of these institutes or most of the hospitals now have a section called as publications and research and expertise so you check on that so a well-published doctor with well good expertise in a particular area will have a lot of publications and a lot of uh, credentials under that particular uh, area of expertise you're publishing research based on your field of yes, uh, work. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. So for example, if you're a liver doctor, you're constantly studying about different diseases, constantly studying about different solutions, right. clinically testing it, then publishing those papers. Exactly. Anything else yeah. you'd like to add? I'll I'll make a small uh, sure. statement here about allopathy. Sure. Right. So we equate the term allopathy to modern medicine. Sure. Right. All the time. I mean, even our media do it. And it's, it's very inherent to uh, India. Uh, where people call modern medicine as allopathy. But I think everybody should know that allopathy is not modern medicine because allopathy was a term coined by the person who uh, invented homeopathy. So homeopathy is basically German invention. It's a German physician. Uh, his name is Samuel Hahnemann. He invented homeopathy because during the early century, I mean, 1800s and all, uh, there were no actual treatments or, for diseases. And so it was a time when the light bulb was not invented, you know, early 1800s. So at that time, if somebody had a headache, people used to drill a hole in the skull to reduce the headache. Uh, people used to bring the blood out, that is known as bloodletting, to reduce the headache. Or if people have some infection and all. I mean, they never knew that the germ theory, the infectious causes for disease also was not known at that time. So there was crude forms of treatment which were actually very painful and torturous for the patient. So this guy, Samuel Hahnemann, felt very bad about it. So he invented a, a system of medicine which was very gentle. So in the process, what he did was to give very diluted forms of medications which actually contains nothing, ultimately, which has very diluted forms. 
to treat lot of diseases that is what homeopathy is so to uh, distinguish to differentiate homeopathy from that crude form of treatment that uh, was actually given at that time he called it as allopathy mm. so allopathy was a, an ancient uh, heroic type of med- crude medicine that was practiced in early 800s it has nothing to do with modern medicine so when people talk say allopathy i always correct them and say it's not allopathy because allopathy is now obsolete because after the invention and after the after we have now scientific medicine coming up that term is now uh, buried what would you substitute that term i would call it as just medicine because medicine is medicine and then you have alternative medicine so if alternative medicine is found to be useful it becomes medicine yeah yeah um some people also call it as science based medicine which is sbm another group calls it as evidence based medicine which is ebm Hmm. but i would just say it as medicine okay i'll tell you what what i am trying to attempt through this conversation is one to understand your strong stance on uh, ayurveda and homeopathy and two to improve my own understanding of all these things without completely discounting any of the three yeah so i mean i would like to take this as an opportunity to say that see i'm i'm not going to i'm not here to convince everybody is about right or wrong but what i'm going to give here or talk about here is plain simple ra- rational and logical approach sure. to healthcare simple so uh, the first is let me give you an example uh, imagine if i have a patient comes to me with jaundice so jaundice is not the disease it is actually uh, a, a a symptom associated with a disease so jaundice can be because of a liver disease it can also be because of a blood disorder a blood disease so jaundice is a symptom the patient feels it patient can see that the eyes are yellow and the urine is yellow that is jaundice and even the doctors can see that the eyes are yellow so it becomes a symptom and a sign which doctors can also see it's jaundice now when i approach that jaundice patient what will i do i'll work him up for the causes of jaundice so i'll first look at hepatitis viruses causing jaundice i'll see if the patient is having significant amount of alcohol use i'll see if this patient is on any specific drugs which can cause jaundice because there are drugs that can harm the liver so i'll 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 look at all of these and ultimately i'll figure out yes the jaundice is because of this disease so imagine it is hepatitis b the jaundice is because of that so i give him a medicine for hepatitis b and the jaundice is gone so he gets cured from the jaundice because he got cured from the hepatitis b so the medicine is an antiviral which is a, a drug that acts against hepatitis b and then he is fine now imagine the same person going to a ayurveda ayurveda has no concept of root cause even though we keep hearing root cause root cause in alternative medicine practice they have no concept they have a concept of treating symptoms only but not diseases so jaundice in ayurveda is just jaundice you know they'll come with jaundice and they have these ancient texts which was written ages ago by these uh sages at the time based on observation and faith and belief but not tested not validated not experimented on without any other replication that means so some for some treatment to be useful to be recommended or approved a large number of people large number to... of people has to be tested and it has to be from different groups so i make a drug and i say that this drug is good for this doesn't makes sense because another group also has to say it so I, I, it, otherwise it becomes a bias from my side so it's my drug so i say it's good but that is known as uh, validation and replic- replicability so this is all part of scientific medicine 
in ayurveda it's it's not there so it is not validated not tested you cannot falsify it in the sense that you cannot change it because it's already fixed in the textbook that in this case you have to give this only mm. right so the different causes for jaundice so if somebody comes with hepatitis b or somebody comes with uh hepatitis a jaundice or somebody comes with alcohol hepatitis jaundice ayurveda treats them all same which is actually not right by the patient because patient deserves to be treated for the disease that is causing the jaundice so which is why i say that ayurveda is a pseudo science in the sense that it, do you do you think all of it is a pseudo science of course because the principles are all the same it's it's, it's based on vata pitta kapha and it's based on the based on the elemental theory of disease formation and if you ask an ayurved what a vata is what a kapha is how do you measure it please show it to me they can't they'll go philosophical so it's it's a philosophy of treatment in ayurveda and all that there's a lot of philosophy a lot of belief and faith and all attached to it so which is why i say that for realistic healthcare these are not good options for people to go for now you'll hear stories that you know ayurveda has actually improved certain conditions so this skin disease is there it's gone or this asthma was there it's gone this jaundice is there it's gone because of ayurveda i mean you do hear it i mean i get a lot of such responses also so that is where the natural history of disease comes in so every disease so like for example we are all born one day we have this life expectancy and we die this is how life goes same with the disease so there are diseases which start which keeps going very long those are chronic diseases and there are diseases which start and they take a course and then they automatically come down after few years or few weeks or few months whatever take the example of childhood asthma like we spoke in the in the beginning i was an asthmatic child uh, i used to take a lot of inhalers and i used to be admitted for asthma attacks and all i used to take a lot of medicines including steroids as need be during my childhood but by the time i was 12 years 13 years my asthma is gone because childhood asthma majority of childhood asthma will go away at a certain age there are other forms of asthma which can come later in adulthood for for that it's a it's a different treatment so somebody will start asthma medications at the age of 5 years imagine modern medicine so they taking this taking this but asthma attacks keep coming in between now it's 5 years 6 years 7 years 8 years 9 years 10 years of age they have tried modern medicine 6 years they have tried modern medicine now they are not happy so they say okay let's try ayurveda so they try ayurveda in between this also so now they go for ayurvedic treatment and they do it for 2 years so now already the child is 10 years of age so in 2 years they try ayurveda and by the time the child is 12 years of age asthma is already gone because it is supposed to go away at that time because that is a natural history of childhood asthma but what would the parents feel the parents will feel that okay we started ayurveda now so ayurveda has cured the disease mm. because it was started the last so mm. they feel that it is a bias it this was started so it has gone but in reality the asthma is supposed to go away at the age of 12 and it has gone on its own and nothing ayurveda has nothing to do with it so this is why we have to define anecdotal experiences from scientific evidence yeah. okay right so this is my my take on ayurveda versus scientific evidence and the same with homeopathy mm-hmm. homeopathy has a different set of principles altogether which are absurd it is made by samuel hanneman only where he claims that something that can cause a disease in very dilute forms it can cure the disease which is impossible so basically if i have alcohol liver disease snake venom theory yeah so ah uh, i mean that is anti venom you're giving anti venom against the uh, snake venom but this is not like that so imagine i have alcohol liver disease so if i give myself 
diluted forms of alcohol i can cure the alcohol liver disease i mean it doesn't it doesn't work that way you know something that causes a disease cannot cure the disease so there are separate set of principles similar to what in ayurveda because it cannot be tested and it cannot be experimented because the principles themselves are very weak and illogical hmm Okay uh I have no perspective on homeopathy never been through it never even spoken to anyone who has wow. practiced homeopathy so I have no perspective I have some perspective on ayurveda through the show and through uh you know even like lifestyle coaches and all who've been on the show uh in my eyes I don't first of all I'm from a medical family like so my parents have like drilled uh your kind of logical thinking into my system as well in terms of what you spoke about that if you see someone with jaundice the way your mind works as a doctor like a medical doctor is that you'll find the pathway to the root cause yes and then the medicine and whatever you've learned and the constant education that you're doing even now will lead you to the solution you cure the root of or the problem or control it or control it yeah. uh and then what you see on the surface will also start getting cured exactly and you're improving health that way exactly uh my first thought if i am ever ill is to obviously go to a doctor like yourself uh but as a consumer because i am meeting such crazy people on the show like i've met people who've practiced some kind of alternative medicine in south america which is ayahuasca and all these things okay uh have you heard of ayahuasca no no okay uh, yeah. like as in i'm this there's a botany uh, phd i had on the show called mark plotkin okay. his whole life is dedicated to plant medicine in south america okay. and one of the active ways he makes money is that he consults uh, big pharmaceutical companies who try making uh, medicines hmm. based on his research from the world of botany okay so i can't remember the name of the exact plant but uh, serpentine reserpine re, yeah reserpine yeah. serpentine yeah. that is raulfia serpentina serpentina correct yeah. uh so i'm just giving one example yeah, yeah. uh that drug i what is it used for sir? so it's used for uh, high blood pressure high blood pressure yeah so that is not from uh, south american uh, knowledge that's actually from ayurveda knowledge so in ayurveda even now uh, the ayurved practitioners treat high blood pressure by giving the extract of this particular plant known as raulfia yeah. serpentina yeah so the active component in that is reserpine 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 yeah. now reserpine was initially used as a bp control agent but now it is completely stopped because it has lot of side effects including depression and suicidal thoughts so that is no more used because we have no safer uh, anti bp i mean uh, bp lowering medications at the moment so the traditional i mean i am not denying the fact that we have natural sources of medicine yeah that, so that's what i was getting yeah. towards with ayurveda exactly now if we look at ayurveda's contribution to any particular medicine or a drug that we use currently now it is zero if we look at traditional chinese medicine there is something known as artemisin which is an anti malarial drug which was fda approved and all that which is one of the most common drugs that we use in uh, to treat malaria that knowledge came from traditional chinese medicine but it was not traditional chinese medicine practitioners who actually discovered that it was actually modern medicine practitioners and modern pharmacologists who identified it based on the texts that they studied from traditional chinese medicine such a similar discovery or drug discovery from ayurveda does not exist so we have lot of knowledge about plants and their effects in the human body we also have a huge database where we know what 
what plant contains what all molecules and what all compounds these are these are there i mean it's not like it's waiting to be discovered this is already there there's a huge repository a database of all the chemical components active components in every plant i'll give you a very simple example so there is this uh drug called i mean there is this plant called ashwagandha so ashwagandha is heavily uh, talked about in ayurvedic literature uh, people consume it for anxiety stress relief and things like that some gym goers do it to improve their oxygen toler i mean their tolerance and oxygen capacity and all that but there are studies i mean it's already known that what all does ashwagandha contains so ashwagandha contains a particular compound called vitanolide a that is vitanone a which has been shown to damage dna of the liver cell no this is this is a fact i mean there's a huge study that has shown that the vitanone a component of ashwagandha herb can actually damage the liver cell especially by damaging the dna which is why we are now getting a lot of patients with ashwagandha related liver injury even in my practice and across the globe mm. so we just recently published the largest series of ashwagandha liver injury from our unit in the official journal of uh, american association of study of liver diseases which is the journal known as hepatology communications a fantastic journal high impact factor peer reviewed publication where we showed that there are people who actually develop uh, liver injury because of certain herbs and the component in the herb that causes the liver injury is this so what we have to do is that if we are going to identify a particular natural compound from a particular plant we have to ensure that that natural compound is what we require and it is beneficial and safe instead of using the whole plant okay hypothetically speaking if um some big institute carries out very very detailed tests on ashwagandha again and and this is this is my issue with studies in general and you can talk about dr huberman here also or generally studies i feel you have to study two opposing studies together and then look within the nooks and crannies to like find gaps in both and then come Yeah truth. I mean it, it's very simple you know the scientific method is quite simple you know you have a hypothesis you have a theory like for example so i know that ashwagandha is going to reduce stress so i know this because it's already written in maybe classical text ancient text and now we have some data from pre preclinical studies preclinical means before human studies are taken up we do the studies in in the cells or tissues or in small animals so from that we have some data that you know this ashwagandha is reducing stress levels now what in ashwagandha is reducing stress level is the next question yeah now we don't want the whole ashwagandha we want that particular part of it so it may be one compound it may be two compound it may be three compounds but we have to identify it now you take extract those one or three compounds and then test it again in animals and see that they are actually causing this beneficial effect with lesser side effects that, so exactly everything will I'm have side effects but you need more benefits than side effects oh. now you know that in animals it is safe so let's move on to humans mm. so in humans we have phase 2 phase 3 and phase 4 studies where we look at larger groups of people we control for lot of other things and then look at safety and everything and in humans we identify that you know this particular compound or three compounds reduces stress levels and this is what is going to be used as a drug in the future we have to go through all of that yeah. so what is now happening is that people are just promoting ashwagandha Okay, take so this first stress. I think what I'm understanding about you as a medical practitioner is that your problem is this carpet bombing of advice. That exactly for this problem, take ashwagandha. Yeah, it's not yeah. like that. No, it's not like that. It has to be 
refined so that you know that the person who's getting it is going to benefit from it more than getting a side effect and when if if you use the sentence ayurveda is a pseudo science then a consumer would view it as you're completely against the world of plants <laughs> so yeah so the ayurveda is not about plants i think this is what i think people should actually understand ayurveda is not about plants so plant medicine is different so we have herbal medicine we have traditional medicine we have complementary medicine we have alternative medicine there are different forms of medicines which uses plants ayurveda is not about plants ayurveda is a principle hmm. so it's it's a it's a healthcare which includes some principles in it which is what we are looking at so uh, in scientific medicine what is the principle the principle is scientific method so you have to identify something as beneficial or not based on testability falsifiability validity and replication mm. this has to be there in ayurveda it's based on beliefs and observation which is done in the past without further testability accountability or any other uh, changes that has been made so something that is written 3000 years back following it again in 2024 doesn't make sense so that is what i'm calling as pseudoscience i'm not calling as, as that plant part as pseudoscience i'm calling the principles as pseudoscience so the whole of ayurveda if you take away the principles it ceases to exist god god so fair to say that uh, from all the stuff written in ayurvedic texts there might be some things that need to be studied further and then can be applied into modern medical science exactly well. so there will be something there that we can actually use for drug discovery okay so drug discovery is actually one of the most powerful arms of scientific medicine it has nothing to do with traditional medicine or alternative medicine but don't you think it can get inspiration from aspects of traditional medicine yeah so we borrow observational knowledge or observed uh entities from traditions but then what we do to it is based on the scientific method sure because if you leave it to the traditional healers to find a cure for hepatitis mm. b they will never mm. right they will still be stuck on that herb that i used that time that is the only herb they'll be stuck like that but mm. you put it in a scientific method they will find what in that herb actually did that mm. and then make it a drug i mean i have read the whole of ayurveda text which is taught as part of curriculum in bams so there is a bachelor of ayurvedic medicine and sciences that is taught in india it's a five year course they have all these textbooks in the curriculum i have all those textbooks in my uh, house yeah. um it happened so because when i was actually talking about ayurveda practices and products not practice per se products related uh, liver injury uh, of which i have the first publication in the world um a lot of patients actually died because of herbal liver injuries and we had to transplant some it's a huge it was a huge uh, study that is it something related to heavy metals by so heavy metals were part of it but then there are also inherent toxic plants also there are some plants which are very harmful for the liver for example giloy dinospora cordifolia which is giloy that we commonly call as guduchi it's very toxic to the liver ashwagandha in some people are very toxic green tea is a very toxic thing to the liver green tea extracts so there are plants that are toxic to the liver so when we start we published that particular uh, study and started talking about it um, you know there was a lot of uh, backlash because people did not understand uh, the whole aspect of how uh, we approach it you know it's it's from this from the scientific medicine perspective from from evidence based point of view so instead of publishing on side effects we actually need to actually publish on the benefits of it so which which is why i i uh, say that you know it's not just 
the herbals that are part of ayurveda ayurveda is a huge uh, thing i mean it's a huge practice and what i learned read from the texts of ayurveda what what they were teaching in the colleges is that uh, it's mostly to do with to, you know just practicing it you know you find a person you look at whatever the principles they follow and then you serve them this particular bunch of herbs or whatever and it contains it may contain heavy metals as part of the preparation or it may be a contamination or adulteration of it or it might be that plant which is already toxic that is causing the problem so that is a whole aspect yeah. of what i have found from my own clinical research yeah. work um the only fair way to do this breakdown conversation is to actually have an ayurved expert with you who's as eloquent as you to and for you guys to talk so uh, and i'm giving yeah, a like consumer perspective here I, i understand i mean i have invited a lot of ayurveds to talk on clubhouse talk on twitter they don't come they don't come i mean i am inviting them anybody wants to have a realistic conversation on how to approach patients and diseases from an ayurvedic perspective versus a scientific medicine perspective i will guarantee that i can change their way of thinking on how medical science actually works this is something known as uh, appeal to antiquity which means that just because something was there for so long doesn't mean that it is actually useful for example um, we've had modes of transportation which was possibly uh, bullock carts many many decades ago or centuries ago or animal based modes of transport but at that time it was good but now we have better modes of transport so we use them now so just because it was good at that time doesn't mean it is better now or can be considered equal to the modes of transportation that we have now so that is that is known as appeal to antiquity it's a logical fallacy which a lot of people actually make and the second aspect is that uh, about mixing both so you have a scientific evidence based practice and you have this traditional wisdom or knowledge and you include that also in this to get best of both worlds this is what is classically known as integrative medicine so i have right. a yeah integrative medicine so integrative medicine is you you have scientific medicine or real medicine and then you put in some alternative medicine also into it to see you getting the best of both worlds and a lot of people practice it uh what i'm going to say might uh might not be uh, very digestible for people but the way i see integrative medicine is you have a glass of apple juice and you have a glass of urine so you mix this urine with apple juice what are you going to gain from it are you going to say that the urine gets better because it's in the apple juice now or the apple juice is getting worse because the urine is there that is integrative medicine something that works and something that does not work you mix both you are giving undue credit to the thing that does not work so that is why even though we have this traditional knowledge and wisdom and all that we don't have evidence of them actually working but what if they invest time resources into doing the research would would you change your mind if you saw the research i mean see i'm not denying the fact that there is no research huge research is going on in this aspect i mean look at our country i mean look at india every budget 3000 crore uh 3000 uh, crore inr is given to the ayush ministry to conduct research now it's been almost say 10 14 years and this research has been going on even before tell me one traditional ayurvedic formulation which is recommended or approved 
for any disease condition known to humans by any clinical society in the world we need an ayurvedic doctor for that no i mean i'll tell you the answer zero because i am treating patients for lot of disease conditions endocrinologists are treating there are there are guidelines for treatment of all disease conditions in the world and none of them feature ayurveda none of them feature homeopathy why because that is alternative medicine alternative medicine is medicine that has not proven to be working or has been disproven from working so that is why they are there and realistic medicine is here so th- this is i mean it will come out as a strong opinion no, on on evidence based medicine but for for when i look at it from a patient perspective just imagine uh, i mean i'm t- i'm telling this from my own experience so i said i mean we have a lot of patients with hepatitis a right so hepatitis a patients have usually in 99% of patients the hepatitis a it presents with jaundice abnormal liver function and the patients have nausea vomiting general you know low appetite and all that for few weeks and then the jaundice settles within 4 to 6 weeks mm. that is what is hap- that is what is happening in 99% of patients so all they need is good nutrition simple supportive medications for nausea vomiting and all that and they are fine but imagine this patient is going to a, a traditional medicine healer or an ayurveda or a herbalist and they give him take these herbs for jaundice now some of these herbs are not tested they are not they are not evidence based herbs for this particular condition there is no data to it it's just based on their generation knowledge or ancient wisdom they are giving now instead of getting uh, better the herbs are going to cause liver injury herbal liver injury on top of hepatitis a so that patient instead of getting better within 4 to 6 weeks lands up in a hospital undergoes a liver biopsy takes about 2 to 3 months to uh, to for things to get improved spends more money than what is required mm. so this is what happens when you mix something that is not evidence based with something that is evidence based or not okay right so that is why i want even ayurveda practitioners to bring to the table evidences not observation and faith based but actual evidences empirical evidence from studies and not just simple studies or reports proper clinical phase trials on evidence level 1 2 3 4 5 there are clinical levels of evidence that we have to follow hmm. so evidence level 1 and clinical evidence 2 is the ultimate so if you have such data that be, that means that the treatment is going to be approved or recommended for that particular condition hmm. there is no such data okay um you know he's about lane not an andrew human yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a yeah, neurobiologist he's a neurobiologist yeah, yeah, yeah. so i'm not i am an engineer who's <laughs> turned into a content creator there's no way that i'll be able to take you on in like disease based conversation I we need like an ayurvedic person yeah, like yeah, for it yeah. okay but what i will give you again is little consumer perspective which is what we want you know um yeah. so uh, we spoke th- that that first theory like we spoke about that you can't take an old thing and just uh, an antiquity yeah appeal to antiquity appeal to antiquity or appeal to tradition yeah. we call it my only reason for being open to appeal to antiquity is based on my own subjective life experience which is that until age 22 i was very against meditation pranayama yoga also yeah and as life has moved forward not only have i become open to it based on my own experiences but uh, it benefited my own subjective reality meditation specifically and also from a personal personal yeah. perspective which is where i think a lot of ayurved cheerleaders come from that maybe in their subjective reality it may have helped them exactly so these are known as anecdotal experiences yeah. Yeah. which so, is not part of the scientific methodology it just makes people open 
to the possibility because also say again i'm using meditation yoga and pranayam as three uh kind of topics amongst a vast number of misunderstood or ununderstood topics from ancient wisdom yeah. i feel like these three have been researched upon and are being researched upon very actively actively yes uh, but but then uh, we are still waiting for good levels of evidence on all of these you know i mean there are preliminary evidence that says that there are it has usefulness in certain group of group of patients or certain group of disorders but we are waiting for like i said clinical levels of evidence 1 2 3 4 and 5 5 is basically like this i mean personal anecdotes and opinions then comes case reports case series randomized control trials then comes meta analysis of these trials and then comes umbrella review of those meta analysis of trials which is a huge that is the ultimate evidence so until we have that we will not recommend it that is how the scientific medicine works i i understand what you're saying i think all these domains are trying to explore just what's on that other side of the wall exactly which also brings me to that urine apple juice thing yeah. <laughs> i understand what you're saying because yeah. probably you've seen patients who have gone to an ayurvedic doctor and things have not resulted good they've actually created a bigger problem for you as a medical doctor and that's why you view it as urine <laughs> instead of whatever it is yeah i mean, in, I mean it's supposed to it doesn't make apple juice better but it makes it worse in my science is definitely apple juice but i view this whole world of ancient wisdom not as urine but as cloudy grape juice like in terms of there there might be a lot of gunk there but yeah. it's it's yet to be researched upon and understood like i would like to see decades of a uh, scientific research going into the direction of if all the ancient wisdom be it south american chinese indian yeah. uh after decades of research because your industry which is medical science has had decades of research yes. behind it so it's the advantage your argument has in the first place yeah so but it should be structured research you know i mean i'm not denying the fact that you know yoga or ayurveda or homeopathy has no research yeah. i mean they are doing a lot of they have their own journals and they have their own yeah. publications everything but it's not structured the way it has to be you know you cannot use that as a modus operandi for you know treating patients because just because it's there yeah see i mean if 10 20 years later we have the same conversation and the uh, compass has not moved at all like if your uh, the argument that you're making now still valid then then i'll be completely on your side yeah But i need 10 I years need, we'll have this conversation yeah, i need to wait for like 2 3 more decades honestly i understand unless understand. someone does like very ferociously fast research which i don't think is possible it takes time it okay. takes time but then i understand that you know ayurveda is not something that has come yesterday it has been there for centuries it we have been doing it for decades and yeah. still what would another a couple of decade yeah. add to it one one last point i'll make is uh, see like i started this podcast in many ways for curio- for my own curiosity yeah. you know to ask questions to further my own understanding Got rather it. than to uh, just like put forward what i think and i began there and after meeting so many people i've really begun to think that okay true knowledge is knowing that you know nothing mm, that yeah. allows you to like keep expand which is why i'm like you know nudging. i understand so, i understand yeah but i've also noticed that people who come from a scientific background be it yourself be a dr huberman even two scientific temperament oriented people for example you're disagreeing with dr huberman on some stuff i yes i do disagree on some right. stuff yeah uh, but he has got a really good uh, outlook at how the neurobiology is and especially his older videos fantastic but, but some of them are not both of you are still following the same scientific structure of thought i feel yeah. at least or uh, at least your own yeah yeah i mean it, it does he does that but then uh, there are instances where uh, he just blindly promotes based on very low so, levels of evidence so the consumer angle is perhaps and i'm not accusing you of anything sir yeah. but maybe even you are doing the same thing 
like this is the consumer perspective yeah i'm not accusing you at all yeah no i understand where this comes from but huberman is not a clinical doctor right so i would not take his advice as clinical advice at all i am a clinical doctor and when i treat patients or i talk about treatments they are always evidence based and they are not based on flimsy preclinical evidence consumer perspective that's what huberman also says that it's all evidence based so yeah, yeah. In, so that's where we have this domain expertise right you have to yeah. i'm yeah. i'm viewing you both as champions of science one is spider man with certain powers one is iron man with certain powers <laughs> so all i can do is observe what you guys are seeing but i feel like some human emotion and some human biases always come yeah, into science so uh, i'm i'm saying that and i'm i'm giving additional pictures to it sure. you know so somebody says that you know this is what is given in this evidence so this is what you should take i'm saying that you know this is also there so take this also into consideration i'm not saying that this is completely wrong or completely right i'm saying that there is a balance and it's a logical balance that people can take for themselves because i am very transparent in putting up my evidence there yeah. huberman may hide proper evidence or may not hide i don't know but whenever there is evidence that is hidden i just bring it out and i don't do it for everything there are certain areas where i feel that there is a misinformation that's all i need to have dr huberman on the show with oh. you too <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth i mean like i said it has to be on the same page right everything has to be on the same page i mean for or against it has been the same page and then people balance benefits to risk ratio regarding that particular intervention and then take the right call yeah. and that is what we are doing here also again this is like little meta but on a human level this is what life is in terms of you observe of the world and then eventually you do what you yeah. think is best observe test validate replicate okay that's it uh before i let you go on today because we're out of time for our first episode yeah uh i have to ask you about the liver again because that's the overarching theme i think yeah. people enjoyed the cage fight this was a very <laughs> cute cage no, fight yeah because it was i mean it was interesting and i yeah. love such conversations where there is balance to what we discuss yeah yeah before we head into our second episode a uh, very quick uh, kind of recap on lifestyle related factors for liver health just to summarize a bit of this episode because we have to do a whole episode on alcohol Yeah I think it's a very yeah. practical modern urban problem but uh, minus the alcohol side of things what yeah. would you put as lifestyle based factors for healthy um, liver health we have some very interesting things that we can do uh so first is that uh one is there are i mean something known as preventive medicine which is very important that uh you know you do a set of things or you avoid a set of things you can actually avoid getting into trouble so doctors don't want damage control they mm. actually want people not to get sick so the number one is that physical activity is very important for liver health by physical activity i mean and this is studied also well you need to have 150 minutes of moderate to rigorous physical activity a week which is easily doable for everybody so it's 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous rigorous physical activity in a week so let me define moderate and rigorous so moderate is just cycling swimming brisk walking brisk walking is basically you take 100 steps in a minute so that's 100 steps in 60 seconds that's brisk walking or simply running for at least 3 hours to 4 hours in a week so that is good moderate physical activity rigorous is what you do inside a gym under a trained protocol where there is structure and you actually do a lot of aerobic exercises you do weight training you do resistance training you do high intensity exercises you do circuit training all of this will come under vigorous activity this actually helps prevent 
lot of liver related diseases especially the ones to do with metabolic liver disease that is non alcoholic fatty liver diseases and other things second is like i spoke before black coffee is a very good uh, intervention that you can uh, include in your diet 3 uh, cups which is about 150 ml each uh, every day perhaps decaf and decaf so if somebody has uh, cannot take caffeine does not like, tolerate caffeine you can go for decaf because caffeine is not the uh, good part of coffee it's something known as polyphenol and uh, coffee is another intervention that you can do third is sleep which is very important because uh, poor quality sleep non restorative sleep lack of sleep these all promote uh, poor liver health in the form of fatty liver disease so sleep try to get at least 7 hours minimum every day and the fourth is that identify yourself as having some risk factor for liver disease for example if you have immediate family members with liver disease and if they've had metabolic disease like diabetes or obesity or heart disease or stroke or high cholesterol high blood pressure anything so you are directly at risk of developing liver disease so please check yourself in the in the sense that you go to a doctor get a physical uh, health checkup and also a, a checkup for the liver so a uh, liver checkup can include liver function test as part of the blood work and in the liver function test if they find some abnormality plus you have some additional diseases that are uh, putting you at risk for the liver disease then they will ask you to do ad- advanced liver testing which may or may not include special types of imaging something like something we everybody knows like fibro scan or shear wave which is basically ultrasound related imaging which they will do from the outside and identify if the liver health is good or not by looking at the liver stiffness how expensive is it it's anywhere from free because there are a lot of companies and uh, uh, you know camps that do it for free to 3000 rupees okay so mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's not done for everyone it's done for those with high risk of liver disease especially from metabolic or alcohol related liver disease so that is how you do a liver checkup and those who need to do liver checkup the fourth is please get vaccinated for hepatitis b Uh, you need to know if you are protected against hepatitis b or not simple just do a two blood test one is a test called as hbsag and second is a test known as anti hbs if hbsag is not reactive negative and anti hbs is not reactive or negative that means that you need to get vaccinated because you don't have the infection you don't have the protection also if hbsag is positive that means you have the infection in that sense anti hbs will be negative anti hbs is basically antibodies or protection against hepatitis b but if you are protected then your hbsag will be negative and anti hbs antibodies to hepatitis b will be positive so that positivity also matters so if it if your antibody titers that levels of antibody against hepatitis b in your body is more than 10 but less than 100 then you have to take a booster only for of the hepatitis b vaccine but if it is more than 100 you are well protected you don't need to take any vaccine at all simple things i mean these are preventable causes for liver disease is there any other test you'd recommend that just an average healthy person take to figure out liver function um i would not recommend any such test because ideally we want to save resources and use resources for people who require it so stressing the you know the health system doesn't <laughs> doesn't make sense for me but uh, if there are risk factors definitely and also i would like to say that liver function test does not actually mean healthy. it shows a healthy liver so a lot of cancer patients liver cancer patients that i treat they have perfectly normal liver function test even better than mine but they have liver cancer 
So, but they have respectable so liver cancer, for example, hepatitis B, diabetes, obesity, alcohol use, they still have normal liver functions. So we have to look everything from a whole perspective. Damn. Okay. Liver doc. Yeah. Sir, thank you. This was a great first episode. Uh, we've not even touched upon alcohol and that's a whole segment. So that'll be a sequel. But thank all you. I'll say is it was great getting to know you off of social media. <laughs> like I was waiting for this and I think it's not just me. Uh, there's a lot of people who need to get to know you uh, because you're doing great work for the Indian Thank medical you. community. I know because I spoke to the doctors and they gave me a medical perspective on you. So I'm just glad to be doing it through Thank our you. I'm platform. also very glad that we had this conversation and and uh, it was really uh, enriching for me also. And uh, I, I hope the, the, the viewers also identify this as one of the best podcasts they have heard yeah. on your channel. No, 100%. Uh, the good news is that the only two podcasts that grow over time, like constantly, are uh, spirituality-based stuff and medical stuff. <laughs> it's just these two. So yeah. I hope that this stays on the internet for like 20 years and just keeps wow. giving. Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank uh, you. And we'll head into our second one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was the episode for today and we have recorded a second one with the liver dog which is much more casual, lots more jokes, lots of chatter about liver damage because that episode is about alcohol. The A to Z about alcohol, it's one of the most important episodes for me because I've been on both ends of the spectrum, drank a lot in my life, I'm a teetotaler currently so if you enjoyed this episode, you're going to enjoy that episode as much if not more. It's a very casual side of the liver dog that you'll get to see in that one. Enjoying the heck out of this biology phase of TRS. I'm so glad that the audiences are finally accepting content that's so deep, that's so medical. Love talking to doctors. It's some of the most fun, interesting, invigorating conversations. Please tell me what are the topics you'd like for us to cover on TRS. I'm happy to do three-hour podcasts with doctors. I'm happy to keep making content like this for the rest of my life, honestly. Give me your feedback in the comment section. And you guys will now kind of be open to the possibility that even TRS can create some medical content, some kind of biology. I highly recommend that you check out our other medical podcasts. They're as deep as this one. I welcome everyone, especially those who have the ability to change their mind and change their perception about people. Once they watch long-form content, I feel that the truth about an online persona or a content creator can only be understood when you watch them over the course of a long conversation. So you're welcome. There's a massive library full of scientific content, full of spiritual content that you may or may not like, but at least explore it first. And for the ones who supported TRS, lots of love to you guys. Big hugs. We'll be back with another biology special very soon.